0: Amen. How we doing? Well, seems like we uh, all watched the IU game yesterday, right? Um, anyway, uh, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. Glad you're with us. Uh, spring break's coming next week. Anybody excited about that? Got a group going to Brazil. I'll be a part of that. I'm excited. Um, hopefully we don't bring anything back to infect all of you or anything uh, traveling around the world. We're we're not too worried about it. We're excited to get to go. Uh, Easter is approaching. This of course is the second Sunday in the season of Lent this Sunday, uh, and uh, which means that Easter is just a little bit over a month away on April 12th coming up. Uh, and with spring break and a couple Sundays where a number of you will probably be traveling here and there, uh, including myself, uh, I definitely wanted to begin to kind of lay out an encouragement to you to be really seizing the opportunities that, that, that this season and Easter Sunday in particular kind to kind of provide. Uh, it's one of those Sundays where a lot of folks who maybe wouldn't normally be willing to receive an invitation to come to church or church activities are all of a sudden a little bit more open to come. And so that gives us an opportunity to really be intentionally prayerful about. Who is the Lord putting on our hearts that we want to invite to bring with us uh, to Easter, to Good Friday, to the, the party and the egg hunt that will be on that Saturday, the day before? Uh, all these different opportunities. Who, who can you be praying about? Who who will you extend an invitation to? Who will you seek to bring with you? And the other side of that too is obviously we're in a college town and a, a lot of transients and a lot of like, you know, a lot of folks may be, may be thinking like, let's get out of town and let's go see folks and, and spend time with family. And, and I don't want to discourage you if that's what you need to do. Uh, We say go with with your blessing, but I would say if there's a way and your family would be open to like maybe getting together the week before or the week after, so you can be here to be around, to welcome the visitors that will be here, folks will be coming through for the very first time on that day. It's always great to have people here to receive them, to welcome them, to extend hospitality. So be praying about how God might use you uh, towards those ends, about how, who He was placing on your heart to, to seek to bring with you. Well, we're jumping back into our study of the book of Exodus uh, this week, and, and we're going to be uh, beginning with the end of basically Exodus 15, moving all the way through the very beginning of uh, the first few, seven verses of Exodus 17. Uh, and, and in those, the, those passages where we see three accounts of grumbling, Right? Three accounts of grumbling as the people of God kind of continue on their journey into the wilderness following the parting of the Red Sea. And I have to admit to you today uh, that I stand before you as, as a world-class grumbler uh, and complainer. Uh, like if there was an Oscar for grumbling, I'm pretty sure I would at least be a nominee or if there was like an Olympics for it, I, I would definitely be in medal contention. I, I feel pretty confident uh, about how, I, I, how pessimistic I am, right? I, I'm, I'm uh, you know, there are people like the glass half full people and the glasses half empty people. And then there's me who, who sees the glass as empty with a hole in the bottom, right? That's kind of my natural tendency. Uh, I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but, but I can be quick to grumble about any number of things, right? Whether it's being caught in traffic Or maybe just caught behind one car that is completely incapable of driving near the speed limit. um, I start to grumble and complain. Or or whether it's you know the one day of the week where I have the earliest meeting of my week, where I got to be up at the earliest time in the morning, more so than any other day. That is the night, the night before, when my children suddenly want to spend time with me and talk to me about all the deepest things going on in their life at like 11:30 p.m. or later. Uh, when I got to get up at like five in the next morning, uh, right? I, 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 I grumble about that. I can, I can start to grumble and get frustrated. Uh, I can complain about the weather. It doesn't matter what the weather is. It's either too hot or it's too cold. The sun's too bright. My eyes are too sensitive. I wish it'd go away. Or man, we haven't seen the sun in like years. I wish we'd finally see it again. Uh, you know, like uh, on and on and on. I grumbled about daylight savings time last night about this whole nonsense of losing an hour. And really, I don't know if you would join me in this, but what's the whole point? Are we like just tricking ourselves? It's not like there's extra sunshine because we changed the clock. Uh, We're just messing with the time. I I, I think we're just tricking ourselves. It's stupid. Um, (laughs) And now I'm inciting you to grumble with me. Uh, if If you're thinking to yourself like, Really? Like, we just had a child and family dedication. Is this the day to be talking about grumbling and complaining? Like, shouldn't we be talking about something more related to parenting? (laughs) Parenting and grumbling go together like peanut butter and jelly, peanut butter and chocolate. I like peanut butter, by the way. Uh, Parenting uh, can be a huge source of grumbling. Uh, Parents of young kids grumble because they're they're not getting enough sleep the kids are waking them up all the time. Uh, They grumble about the temper tantrums that they experience at the grocery store. Uh, While parents of teenagers just stand by with reassurance to you, right? Don't worry, this will pass and it'll be all easy. It's just going to be easy, all right? Uh, You should laugh at that. That's a joke. Parents of teens also don't sleep. It's just a different reason, and a different kind of not sleeping at night. Uh, maybe it's because your kids are up all night and waking you up. Maybe it's because they're driving somewhere and you're hoping that they get home safe, or you're hoping that they're actually where they said they're going to be, and they make it back from that place safely. Um, yeah, it, it, there's all sorts of, of, of ways that, that it can be a source of grumbling. And then sometimes it just, you know, parenting can kind of lead into the worst kind of grumbling where you start to grumble about other people's grumbling. Like, can you believe they're complaining about that? They, well, just wait, right? If they only knew. Which really by default makes you the worst kind of grumbler uh, of all. Uh, and, and I'm being a little silly with this, but, but isn't this true for us? Isn't this true for you too? That we can so easily find ourselves complaining and grumbling uh, about any number of things, even a, a conversation that starts out really positive, we can just quickly turn into complaining. Like today, we could be, hey, what a beautiful day it is today, to which someone retorts, yeah, but I heard it's going to rain tomorrow. Like <laughs> just like that, we go from, from thinking and talking and speaking about good things and, and with thankful hearts to starting to complain and grumble. But grumbling is no small thing. It's dangerous, and in fact, it's, it's toxic, because grumbling is contagious, more contagious than the coronavirus, um, which I don't get. I mean, there's all sorts of other Mexican beer options. You can, don't have to have corona. Um, but grumbling, uh, that's my dad joke of the day, uh, grumbling spreads uh, and multiplies exponentially once it, once it starts, right? Grumbling also leads to, to hardened hearts it makes it more difficult for us to be thankful and appreciative for the many good gifts that God has given us in our lives. And if unchecked, it it can even turn our hearts against God and, and close ourselves off from enjoying His goodness and His grace. And that's why we need these three accounts of grumbling in the book of Exodus, why we need to to look at them, while we need to kind of lean into them, because they not only show us our natural tendency toward grumbling and the great danger that it brings us, but these accounts also point us to the cure for it. And that's what we're going to see as we we dig into Exodus uh, chapter 15, verse 22, through all the way through chapter 17, verse 7, we'll be reading from Exodus 16, 9 through 31. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles on page 58 of those Bibles on your own. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Exodus 16, verses 9 through 31. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat. And in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall take, each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, "'This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest.' "...a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, "'Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none.'" It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we we pray by your grace that you give us eyes to see your goodness to us. Even when you do not work in the ways that we wish for or hope for or expect, Help us to see. Help us to have softened hearts that see your goodness and your grace to us that are, are led increasingly not toward grumbling but towards gratitude because of your goodness towards us through your Son. I pray this all in the name of your Son, Jesus, and all God's people said, Amen. You may have a seat. Right? Three different accounts. We read the middle account here, right? But there's, there's three accounts throughout this, this, this section of Exodus uh, of grumbling. Three different stories of grumbling. And, and in these accounts, we see as we walk through them that we are quick to forget, we are slow to trust, but even when we put God to the test, God is gracious to provide. First, we are quick to forget in the first account, which we didn't read at the end of chapter 15, starting in verse 22, uh, which is immediately right, right after the Red Sea, right? God has, has just parted the Red Sea to enable his people to pass through, escape their enemies, walking through the sea, walls of water on both sides, on dry ground. And then, of course, bringing the sea back down to crush the Egyptians, to destroy them to kill them, to set them free. Like God has delivered His people in this incredibly miraculous and powerful way. He's just done that. Like you would expect that to have been a pretty memorable experience for the people of God. But in Exodus 15:22, we're told that it's only three days later, three days. Three days of journeying into the wilderness after the Red Sea, and they haven't found any water. And then on the third day, they find water, but it's undrinkable. It's bitter, right? They call the place where they find this water Mara because it's bitter. If you're familiar with the story of the book of Ruth, right, Uh, Naomi, who... uh, whose husband had taken her to the land of Moab because of a famine in the the land of Bethlehem and the land of God's people there. Uh, She's taken to the land of Moab. Her husband dies. Her sons get married to Moabite women and then both of her sons die. She returns to the people of God, to the Israelite women there in in chapter one of the book of Ruth, uh, a widowed. And she's accompanied by her widowed daughter-in-law, Ruth. And she comes and she tells the women of Israel to call her what? Mara. Call me Mara because she says God has dealt very bitterly with me. And the people of God in Exodus 15, just three days after the parting of the Red Sea, they're saying the same thing. God is dealing very bitterly with us, so we'll call this place Mara. That's what they're saying. They grumble against Moses. What are we supposed to drink? What are we supposed to drink? See how quick they forget? Three days. So quick to forget. They've seen the mighty hand of God parting the Red Sea, delivering them from their enemies. They've sung these words earlier in Exodus 15, that the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. And later, you, you Lord, have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. That's what they just sang. But that, that was three days ago. That was three days ago. Now they're thirsty. Now they're grumbling. Now God is dealing bitterly with them. And we read this and, and it's easy for us to think that uh, this is so ridiculous. But we, again, we have to remember that as we're reading about the Israelites here, that they're always holding up a mirror for us to look into and examine our own lives. And if you're honest with yourself, if I'm honest with you, uh, we, we too, we can be singing God's praises here on Sunday morning. Isn't God good? Hasn't he been good to us in, in the work of Christ? Wow. Mighty hand of deliverance. We're singing his praises. And then three days later, maybe even three hours later, we've already forgotten it. we are already forgotten it and we're starting to grumble. I don't know about you, but, but I'm so quick to forget and to focus on what I don't have rather than focusing on what I do have in Christ. Right? Many of us, many of us around this room, we, we spend our time uh, thinking about the square footage that we don't have in our homes as we uh, look on Zillow, right? Rather than giving thanks for the home that we do have. We think about how much easier life would be with just a little bit bigger salary, if we just get a few thousand dollars more a year, then we really be able to do this or do that or whatever. Rather than thinking and giving thanks for God's good provision and what we do have already. Rather than giving thanks for the, the promotion we've just received, sometimes we're already thinking about the next step up the ladder that we haven't yet made. And this is that, you know, pastors and church leaders are not immune to this sort of uh, grumbling and, and way of, of thinking either. Rather than giving thanks for what God is doing in the church, it's so easy to, to think about. You can get fixated on who's not here. Or how do we keep it growing? What do we do to keep, keep it going, keep making it bigger, keep, keep moving forward, right? And, and then we start to grumble. But notice God's response to their grumbling. He graciously shows Moses this piece of wood. That makes the water drinkable and sweet. And then in verse 27, don't miss the lavishness in in Exodus 15, 27. The lavishness of God's grace to his people. After after Mar, after he makes the water sweet there, then he leads his people to Elam where there are what? Twelve springs of water and 70 palm trees. Just a, a, a picture of God's lavish grace towards his people. And then in verses, in verses 20, 25 and 26, God, God says to Moses there that he, he tested his people at Marah. And really that test was really a promise that if God's people would simply trust Him, that he, they would find him to be the God who heals them, just as He healed that bitter water. But this leads us right to the second truth. Not only are we quick to forget, but we are also slow to trust. We are slow to trust. And this is seen in the second account that we just read, uh, the account of grumbling in the story of the manna, the bread from heaven. Even after the bitter waters made sweet, and after experiencing God's lavish grace in Elam, again, the people of God grumble. Chapter 16, verses 2 and 3. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger." The people of God are saying that after all they've experienced of God's goodness and grace and his amazing rescue, that it actually would have been better for them if God would, just, would have just killed them back in Egypt. They're actually saying that the exodus has, has made things worse for them. But this isn't just a complaint against Moses and Aaron. Moses makes it clear in verses 7 and 8 that their grumbling is not against Moses. It's against God. Because God is the one who's led them here. God is the one who delivered them from the hand of Egypt. their, Their grumbling is against God. And they're telling God, we wish you would have just left us alone in Egypt rather than bring us out here to starve to death. And you see here so much of the dangers of complaining and grumbling. For one, it leads you to be completely delusional. Absolutely delusional. It hardens your heart in such a way that you can't even see and hear and receive truth anymore. And then you start to fabricate false realities. The people here are are remembering and reminiscing about their time in Egypt. And, And how do they reminisce about their time in slavery in Egypt? Remember when we used to eat those meat pots and bread to the full? And we had it so good there. Like they make it sound like the the slavery in Egypt was nonstop feasting and rest. But it wasn't. It wasn't at all. And even though they had, had seen the lengths that God has gone to in order to rescue and preserve his people, they perceive that God is seeking to destroy them. That he's brought them out in the wilderness only to kill them. It's delusional. It's accusing God of evil, accusing God of deception. And if you were God, how would you respond to that, to that accusation? Well, this is how the one true God responds. He rains down bread from heaven for his people, and they're grumbling against him. He rains down bread from heaven. He provides. He brings quail in the evening so that people can have meat. I'm sure there was like a vegan alternative. Um, and in the morning when the dew has gone up, he leaves behind manna. What is manna? Exactly. Uh, you know, it's actually the word manna is a play on the Hebrew word for what is it because they don't know what it is. Um, but in verses 13 and, and 31 of chapter 16 gives us a little picture of what manna was like. A flake-like thing, fine as frost, that tastes like wafers, Made with honey. What does that sound like to you? To me, frosted flakes, right? They're great. Uh, Tony the Tiger, a hero of my childhood. Um, God gives his people frosted flakes from heaven. And the Lord in verse 4, he points out that he is again testing his people. He's testing his people. It's a test of whether or not they will listen to and obey his voice. Will they trust him? How is this a test of trust? Well, you see, manna requires that, that you trust God each and every day. It requires that you trust Him each day for each day's provision. That one day at a time, you trust Him. That's why the leftover manna, you know, that, that they don't collect, it just melts away. It's gone. It doesn't remain on the ground, what they don't pick up. But this is a test that they don't pass. It's a test that they don't pass. Because some of them, they gather, they, they gather what they need, right? And then they try to leave some, like let, let's only eat a little bit for today and we'll save some for tomorrow and make sure we have something to eat tomorrow. We're going to trust in our own capacities to provide for ourselves. And so we'll, we'll set aside and what happens? The next morning, they box up their leftovers. The next day, it's disgusting. It's full of maggots starting to stink. And they try to, they try to put their trust in their own efforts to gather rather than trusting in God for His daily provision. But you see, God gives them absolutely no option but to trust Him each day, for each day. They got to go out and gather every single day, with one exception, the seventh day. The seventh day is the Sabbath, and it is to be a day unto the Lord, a holy day, a day of rest. So on the sixth day, the people are on that one day alone to gather a double portion of and, and, and on the sixth day, those leftovers, that extra portion, it doesn't spoil. It lasts. It's still good. And again, the Sabbath proves to be an opportunity and an invitation to trust God. But again, they failed the test. Verse 27, on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. That's not like we're just curious. It's like, no, we're going to go see if we can get some more. We don't trust what God has told us to do here. We're going to go looking for ourselves. And one of the ways that you demonstrate that you trust the Lord is in your ability to rest. But see, here's the thing. We are, we are not a people, and we are not in a culture that is good at rest. We don't, we don't tend to know how to rest. Uh, we tend uh, towards a couple of different extremes, but neither one of them is, is rest. We tend to, toward overwork on one end of the spectrum. And on the other end, we tend toward an overconsumption of of media and entertainment. But it's not really rest. You know, just as working seven days a week without ever taking time to to rest and and really recover and reorient your heart, it is not truly restful. Neither is playing video games or watching Netflix for five hours a day. That's not rest. It's not restful. We struggle to truly rest in the Lord because we are slow to trust. We're slow to trust. We're slow to trust that that He's sovereign and He will continue to do what He needs to do without us being busy. We're slow to trust that He's enough, that He'll satisfy us, that we won't be bored We struggle to truly rest because we're slow to trust. And if you can't rest, you expose that you think you you must secure an identity for your of, of your own apart from Christ. You, you expose that you think that you need to accomplish your own justification, whether you know, either before God or or before the world. You, you, you can make all the excuses that you want to make. And, and I, I get this. I make all these excuses for myself all the time, right? But it doesn't change the fact that we're not trusting. You know, I make these excuses to myself, right? I've got, I've got all these things to do this week. I've got to be there for all these different people and, and, and meet with them, which means I have to keep pushing back to where I'm going to end up finishing my sermon on Saturday every week, right? Monday's my, my one day off during the week. One day I, I set aside to, to take off and rest. But you know what? But then I'm like, you know, I didn't get everything accomplished from the week before that I really wanted to. And there's some stuff. Maybe if I could get ahead on it uh, this next week, then, then I won't be in the same spot I was this past week. And I justify to myself why I should not really rest, but start to do a little bit. It's excuses. It's a refusal to trust that Jesus is enough, that he's enough, that resting in him is what I need most of all, and what, people, what the people I serve, what the people you serve, the people that you care for, what they need most of all. Manna is God's way of teaching his people that they must learn to trust him each and every day, that each and every day they need to feed on him and be sustained by him, and that one day a week they need to rest from their labors and press into him in a truly restful and restorative sort of way. And as a permanent reminder of this lesson, at the end uh, of chapter 16, uh, God tells Moses that the, they are to collect a jar of manna that is to be kept for the generations to come. And the jars to just serve as this reminder to God's people forevermore. Of God's daily provision for their need and, and their need to trust Him each and every day. It's a lesson that we're supposed to remember, that Jesus Himself instructs us to remember in the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6:11, he says, What are we supposed to pray there? Give us this day our daily bread. To trust the Lord each day for each day. He's calling us to remember the lesson of the manna, the daily bread of heaven. Every day is an invitation to trust the Lord for that day and what it holds. And we need this lesson. We need this lesson. We, we need to cling to this every day, especially in the days where we're facing some sort of crisis. When everything is out of whack and we've really been hit in the face with something difficult. But this week alone, I, I've met with numerous people who are going through some sort of crisis or are, are themselves walking with someone else who's in the midst of some sort of crisis. And as crisis bombards us, it, it, it bombards us with, with all sorts of these temptations to worry about unending what ifs. Well, well what if this happens now? And, and what if we face this down the road? And, and what if, what if, what if? But Jesus tells us in Matthew six thirty four. therefore, Do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. You must remember, God's mercies are new every morning. They're new every morning. And there's no help for us in playing out all of the what-if scenarios over and over and over and over again in our heads about what this crisis will lead to tomorrow, what it will lead to three months from now, what it will lead to six years from now. There's no help in that. The invitation is to trust the Lord in the midst of it today. And to trust that he's enough for us in the midst of it today. We can't lean into our own strength to try to figure it out and and solve the problems that haven't even happened yet. What we need to do is to trust Jesus. To look to our God who provides for us new morning mercies every day. And trust him and what he has for us. We're quick to forget. We are slow to trust. But in the last account of grumbling. We see that even when we put God to the test. God is gracious to provide. In Exodus 17, one through seven, again, the people find themselves without water to drink and they argue with Moses. They they grumble against Moses and ultimately, again, they're grumbling against God. And as we've seen in the other two accounts, how, how God tested his people, this time the Israelites, we're told, put God to the test. They test God. in other passages of the Bible we can read elsewhere that reflect back on this this moment, this account, and show us the danger of grumbling and how it hardens our hearts. In Psalm 95, verses 8 and 9, reflecting back on this, this moment at Massa and Meribah, it says, Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa, in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. Likewise, there's a passage in Hebrews that actually quotes Psalm 95 and makes the same application, Hebrews 3, 12 and 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In other words, both of these passages are telling us what, what, what started as grumbling in Massa will eventually turn into outright rebellion on the borders of the promised land and will result in 40 years of judgment in the wilderness. As one commentator says, he says, when we presume to judge God, we are in great danger of being deceived by sin and so facing God's judgment. This is a powerful warning for us. The grumbling and complaining, it seems like such a small thing. I mean, I'm only venting. Like, have you ever said that? I know I have. I'm just, I just need to vent a little bit. It's not a big deal. Just venting. But in reality, that little bit of venting can lead to a hardened heart. And a hardened heart leads to ruin. It leads to ruin. God doesn't always work in the ways that we want Him to. He oftentimes does not work in the timing that we would like him to work in. And then the temptation, therefore, kind of arises for us to grumble. Why is this this way? Why is God letting this happen? Why is he doing this to me? And in those moments, we must pray that God would deliver us from temptation. From the temptation to grumble To question him, to put him to the test. And enable us to trust in him rather than test him. Hopefully you're seeing the real danger of grumbling. But but what is the solution? What is the solution? How do we overcome it? How do we escape it? Well, the provision of God in Exodus 15 through 17 is, is merely an echo of what God provides in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You know, John 6 where Jesus, the account of Jesus feeding the 5,000 in, in, in John's gospel, the people recognize in that moment the echoes, the echoes of God feeding his people, giving his people manna in the wilderness. Moses promised that God would raise up a prophet like him from among the Israelites in Deuteronomy eighteen fifteen, 15. And, and the people in John 6, 14, they're wondering, I wonder if Jesus is that prophet like Moses. I wonder if he's the one. But Jesus is so much more than a a new type of Moses, just providing bread from, from heaven. Jesus says that he is himself the bread of life. John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You see, Jesus himself has come down from heaven. He's the bread from heaven. Like manna, he's come to satisfy God's people. Satisfying our hunger, quenching our thirst. But it goes beyond the satisfaction of mere food and drink. He gives eternal life to his people. Forgiveness. Adoption. Welcomed into the family of God. Eternal life to be with God in his glory. He doesn't always give us what we want. Right? like a bigger house or a bigger salary, but he does meet our deepest needs. He does meet our deepest need. He gives us a new identity in him, a secure identity. He gives us lasting satisfaction and fulfillment day by day, unshakable acceptance. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. He gives forgiveness. And, he, and even more than just mere forgiveness, he, he actually clothes you with his own righteousness, imparts to you, gives to you his perfect record of perfect obedience before God. He gives you relationship. He enables you to be adopted as a child of God into the family of God. He gives life and he gives a future an eternal future, to live with Him in His glory. If you seek to find your hope and your money and your possessions, where does that get you in the end? They tarnish, they corrode, and they leave you in the end. Seek to find your identity and your career. Where will that get you? Well, at best case scenario, it'll leave you in retirement and no longer be who you are. There goes your identity. You leave, live for the approval and admiration of others. Their acceptance of you. You get older and you, your looks start to fade. Your power fades. Your platform declines. and then, Or someone more admirable, more lovable than you comes along and takes away all the attention. If you seek to find your meaning in relationships... Someone betrays you, wounds you deeply, or you lose them. They pass on, and you're left grieving. And even when these things seem to last for you, you won't. You're going to die. And as the saying goes, you can take none of it with you. None of it. Except for Jesus. Except for Jesus. Death doesn't rob Jesus of anything. It only serves to highlight his glory and his goodness and his grace to us. If you look to Christ to be your satisfaction, your hope, your identity, your approval, your meaning, there will never be a day where he is not enough. Never be a day where he is not enough for you. Jesus says this to his grumbling listeners there in John 6, verses 48 through 51. He says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that came, comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Look again at Exodus 17, one through seven, and God's gracious provision there. The Israelites with hardened hearts, they grumble against God and they put him to the test. And this is their test, verse seven. Their test is this, is the Lord among us or not? Is he among us or not? And what is God's answer? Look at verses five and six. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel. And taking your hand, the staff, with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. God tells Moses to strike the rock where God is himself standing. And Moses brings down that rod of God's judgment on God. The judgment for the people's grumbling falls on God. God's people deserve judgment for their sin, for their rebellion against him. But God takes the judgment they deserve in their place there at Horeb. And instead, God pours out blessing on his people. Waters pour forward. Water flows from the rock to satisfy their thirst. But there's more here than just meets the eye. For in 1 Corinthians 10.4, the Apostle Paul tells us that that rock was Christ. It was Christ. The rock was a picture of the cross of Christ. In our grumbling, in our hardness of heart, in our rebellion against God, we are the ones who deserve the rod of judgment. We're the ones who deserve God's just judgment. It should fall on you. It should fall on me. But at the cross... Jesus willingly took our place, and there the rod of God's judgment uh, and his justice fell on him. There the perfectly sinless God-man stepped in for sinful humanity to suffer the judgment that we deserve, that through faith in Jesus, blessing might flow into your life. Jesus is both the bread who satisfies our deepest needs and he is the rock that bears your judgment. He's both the bread and the rock. God is gracious to abundantly provide for all of our deepest needs. The reality is that you, you can never pass the, te- the, the, the test of trusting God on your own. You're never going to pass that test by your own efforts, by your own strength. You're going to fail every time. But the answer for our grumbling is looking to Jesus who trusted God perfectly in our place, on our behalf, and then willingly went and suffered the judgment that we deserve for our failure to trust God. Remembering that he is both the bread and the rock is what will enable us to fight against our grumbling. Even more, remembering and fixing our gaze on Jesus is what will transform our grumbling into gratitude, into thanksgiving, into being thankful people, not grumbling people. Remembering and reminding each other day by day of his abundant provision is what will help us to increasingly overcome our tendencies to be quick to forget and slow to trust. This is why we need each other in community. We don't need just people to occupy space with us. We need people who will get real with us, who will, who will call us out on our grumbling and say, I, I don't need to hear that and you, need, you don't need to say that anymore well, I just need to vent. No, no, you don't actually just need to vent. You need to remember what Christ has done for you, and you need to be thankful. We need brothers and sisters around us who will keep pointing us back to the person and work of Jesus so that our grumbling might be transformed by him into gratitude. Thinking on Jesus, we we can see and begin to believe more and more that, that for those who love him, God is truly working all things together for good. Even the crisis in our life. Even the hardships in our life. Because look at what God has done for you. He did not hold back his own son for you. How can he be against you? He is for you. He's with you. You can trust Him. This invites us to trust. You can trust Him. You can cling to Him day by day with a thankful heart. Oh, that God would would melt our hearts, would, would soften our hearts, give us hearts to believe, to trust, to see that He is good. Hearts that could be thankful. Jesus has given us a regular reminder of His gracious provision as we share in the Lord's Supper, the, the bread and the wine serve as a visual reminder that we, we have Jesus and that he alone satisfies our needs and gives us life. And the Lord's Supper also invites us in this, in this time to confess the ways that, that we have wandered away from Christ this past week, that we have not believed that he is enough. It invites us to confess the ways we've grumbled, the ways that we've judged God, put him to the test questioned his plans, and lived as though we needed something else other than him. But in that confession, the bread and the wine that remind us of Christ's body that was broken in his blood that was shed for us on the cross, the bread and the wine, they minister to our souls. They minister to our souls and invite us to turn from sin and trust anew in his grace, to rest in his finished work and find our satisfaction in Christ alone. That's what we're doing. As we share in this meal, believers, you're invited to come forward here in in the coming moments to to tear off a piece of the bread, to dip in the cup. We offer juice and wine to take as your conscience leads you. The the wine is in the glasses marked with twine. If you're not a believer in Christ, this is a meal that's that's reserved for believers, it's a, a meal reserved for Christians. But there's an invitation to you to consider Christ, to consider that He's the bread and the rock for you. He's the one who satisfies all your needs. He's the one who's taking God's just judgment in your place. And this is an opportunity for you to take Christ in faith. There'll be pastors and prayer responders here in the back of the room. We'd love to visit with you. love to pray with you about anything that you're going through and point you to the hope that we have in Jesus. Encourage you to trust in Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You. We thank You that You do not leave us to our own devices. that you do not treat us as our our grumbling deserves. But Lord, that you are patient with us. You are gracious towards us. That you send your, your own son, Jesus, that you live the trusting, faithful life that we never could and you die the death that we deserve in our place. would you help us to be gripped with that today so that our singing is not just here in these moments and we forget it three days, three hours from now, but so that our hearts are gripped in a way that we continue to rest in you and trust in you day by day, increasingly by your grace, for your glory, for our joy. pray this in Jesus' name, amen.